Amen. Thanks, Toby and the band. Good morning, everyone. Happy Sunday to you. Oh, thank you all. Thank you all. Uh, hi. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Matt, and it's my privilege to actually serve on staff here. I'm the uh, young adults pastor, and I oversee all of our life groups. And then every now and then I get to come up here and uh, share and teach. Uh, so I'm excited to be up here this morning and to share a little bit from God's Word with you. But before we get going, I've got to ask an important question. I mean, how many, how many uh, Stranger Things fans are in the room? Come on, okay. We just went from a really holy moment to start talking about Stranger Things. Um, that's awesome. I'm just glad that you guys were able to peel yourself off the couch and stop your binging on the, the latest season and join us today. That is great. You know, it is the fall, and there's a lot of shows that are relaunching, new shows are coming, you know, and like, it, it's the fall, right? I know the weather doesn't, it doesn't feel like the fall, but it, it is the fall, and we got all kinds of new shows. But here's the thing, I've got a, a little bone to pick with uh, TV shows, and I know I'm going to be divisive, this is going to, you know, might offend, but shows, it kind of bothers me that there's, there's the conflict that just goes throughout the entire season, and it never gets resolved. You have to watch one episode after the next, after the next, after the next. There's all the cliffhangers, and even sometimes at the end of an entire season, the conflict is not even resolved. You have to wait an entire uh, several months before you even get to the next season. I'm like immediate gratification kind of person, so this is, I, I, <laughs> this is why God, so I think God gave us movies. I mean, movies, you, you go in, or you turn it on, hour and a half, two hours at the most, you know, a good movie, and you know that there's that conflict, the tension, it rises, and then it ends, and it gets resolved, and you can go on with the rest of your life. I actually appreciate that. So I think God gave us movies. You know, and most of the time, it's interesting, with movies, the, I think the, the best part about movies is like that final, that final showdown part. You know, that part, uh, as, you're, as you're watching it, there's all of the, 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 the tension has been building. It's leading up to that climatic moment where the, the hero and the villain, they finally face each other. Or there's that moment where the, the main character overcomes the obstacle and uh, their, her, his or her life is changed. Or there's the, the underdog team. They, they, go through, they defeat all the odds and they actually come out victorious. You know, these climatic moments. And essentially, the best part of a movie is what is known as the, a high noon moment. High noon is the, the way to describe a, a moment that is a decisive confrontation or a contest. And after the high noon encounter, things aren't the, ch aren't the same. Lives are changed. And what we're going to look at today is actually one of the greatest and most mysterious high noon moments in Scripture. In many ways, the story we're looking at today, it represents the climatic moment in the life of a guy named Jacob, a guy we've been looking at for the last couple weeks. Everything in his story, everything that we've covered, and everything as you're reading, it's just building. It's brewing. It's building to the point uh, the singular moment in time. Jacob has this high noon moment. And today we're going to tune into Jacob's high noon moment. And so if you would open or turn on your Bibles and uh, poke your way to chapter 32 of Genesis. 
And as you get that, why don't you go ahead and stand with me? I know standing is controversial these days. Um, (laughs) But this is a place where we can all agree to stand in honor of reading God's word. Chapter 32 of Genesis, let me read 22 through 31. Now Jacob arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And Jacob said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over the Peniel, and he was limping on his thigh. And God, we ask you this morning, Lord, that you would open our minds, Lord, that we might understand in deeper ways, God, the lengths to which you have gone to rescue us, to save us, and to bless us. And God, I also pray you, you don't just stop with our minds, Lord, that you bridge that gap between our minds and our hearts, Lord, that we might uh, see you and experience and encounter you in a very w- real way, experience your love and your blessing in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So let me ask this question. What comes to your mind when you think of something spiritual? You know, like having a spiritual experience. It's interesting that there's a lot of talk about spirituality these days. And, uh, you know, especially living in Encinitas, uh, you know, I feel like Encinitas is a very spiritual city, and there's a lot of spirituality around. You know, and there's, uh, in our bookstores, if you were to go into, like, Barnes and Nobles, or if you just look at the bookshelves, and there's, like, the uh, bookshelves are filled with spirituality, uh, the spiritual section, filled with uh, books on spirituality. And most of the, uh, the themes that you'll see with uh, said books are, you know, spirituality will likely be described in like how to experience an inner calm or how to, how to experience rest. And I'd say for, that, for most of us, when we think of uh, a spirituality, we envision something calm. We, uh, we think of something quiet and serene or peaceful. We envision times of, of undisturbed tranquility. You know, there's a lot of talk about getting centered. It's like, are you getting centered? Centeredness is, a, is a, big, a big topic. But what we see in Scripture is that most encounters with God are actually disturbing. They're dangerous. That people who encounter God don't get centered and balanced. They get knocked over. They don't get centered. They lose their balance. A couple of examples. Uh, one of a lesser-known guy, his name is Manoah, and he, in Judges 13, Manoah and his wife, they're the parents of Samson, you know, Samson, uh, they have this conversation with the angel of the Lord, 
And at one point, Manoah realizes who they were just talking to, and he says, we are doomed to, uh, we are doomed to die. Why? He's, he says, because we have seen God. Another example is uh, the, the prophet Isaiah. You know, when, he's, when he sees God, he has this vision of God, all of a sudden his response is, woe to me. Woe to me because I'm a man of unclean lips. And you think about a prophet, their job, like they're the, the most like, godly part of them was probably their lips because they were speaking the truth of God to the people. And here he is, the prophet Isaiah, he sees God and he's like, I, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. See, the response when, when people encounter God is, is not centeredness. Sometimes it's just becoming unraveled. It's becoming undone. And to actually see God meant you were probably going to die. So stories like those and the, and the story that we're going to look at today radically redefine what we mean by a spiritual encounter, by a spiritual experience. You see, this is what happened to Jacob. Instead of getting centered, he was knocked off balance. He was knocked off of his, off his feet. Instead of experiencing inner calm, he was flattened to the ground and sent away with a limp. That was his spiritual experience. I mean, how cool would that be? You show up here, the second service on a Sunday, you're walking up on the plaza, and then everybody walking out of first service is coming out with bandages, and they're all limping. They're like, what the heck happened? It's like, it's a great service, man. God showed up. I mean, that'd be pretty awesome. So there's so much to talk about with this particular story, but in order to understand what's at stake and what's going on in, in the story, we need to look at what's happened, what has already happened that has brought Jacob to this place. What has brought Jacob to this, this place in his life, this high noon moment. We need to see the tension and the conflict that has happened, that's been brewing and building over time, leading Jacob to this encounter with God. Because all throughout Jacob's life, he has... There's this motif, if you just read Jacob's life in one sitting, there's this motif, this theme, this motif of struggle, this theme of wrestling. And so what we're looking at today actually isn't Jacob's first wrestling match. He's been at it for a long time. And so what I want to do today is just, let's just look at Jacob's wrestling career. You know, so this is a bit of a review. We've, uh, Ryan and Dale shared over the last couple weeks uh, parts and pieces of, of Jacob's, this backstory. Uh, so th what's the first thing that we see Jacob doing? The first time he shows up in the story, what's the first thing that we see him doing? Wrestling. It's the very first thing. Check this out. In Genesis 25, verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. Isaac is, is his dad, Jacob's dad. He prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, then why am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. So she made her appointment. She got the ultrasound done. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold... There were twins in the womb. So this is the first time that we meet Jacob. The first time we meet him, he's wrestling in his mom's womb with his womb mate. 
I had to, sorry. <laughs> you know, so from the very beginning of Jacob's life, we see that he is a wrestler. And uh, Jacob and his brother are born, and his brother comes out first, and it says that the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. Wow, what a description. To be honest, that, that kind of freaks me out to even think about that. Ah! But I did get curious, you know, and I did some digging around. I'm like, I have to figure this out. I uh, did some digging around, and it is pretty incredible. There's been some, a lot of researchers and scholars, and they've actually been able to, like, figure out and kind of develop and create a composite of what Esau most likely looked like. So I found his picture. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Gotta love it. You know, something else uh, really interesting that happens, too, during the birth is that said, the story says that Esau came out first and that Jacob came out behind, but he was grasping Esau's heel. And so that's how he got his name. Jacob means grasper, which is another way of saying you're a deceiver. I mean, that, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, how would you like that? You, have, you just have your, your child and people come up to you and they're like, oh, my goodness, he's so cute. What's his name? Deceiver. <laughs> but we call him liar for short. But this, this sets the stage and like the trajectory of Jacob's life. There's a lot of power in a name. And, and, and the name that you go by often, oftentimes shapes your identity. It's something that uh, we, Ryan talked a lot about several weeks ago. But all this sets the stage and the trajectory for his life. So Jacob and Esau, they grow up. They're twins. They grow up, but they couldn't be more different. You know, Esau, he's like the macho guy. He's the outdoorsy. He's hairy. We already learned that. But he's like the man's man. You know, think of a Gaston. You know, he probably had a huge lifted truck, he, lots of guns, and posters of the Duck Dynasty dudes on his wall. Probably. Jacob, on the other hand, well, he, he had well-moisturized skin. He, he preferred to be indoors. He loved to cook. He watched The Bachelor while spending a lot of time on Pinterest. You know, and I'm pretty sure he drove a Prius. <laughs> Hashtag Toby. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> whoop, whoop. Uh, so the story tells us that uh, Jacob's mother... She loved Jacob, but we also see that Isaac, Jacob's father, he preferred, he loved Esau, and that's a significant statement there, because there's something incredibly powerful about the love of a father. There's something incredibly um, important when it comes to a father and the way that the father's able to affirm and, and, and provide validation and love to their children. So many people today carry around a father wound, you know, because they never heard their father say, they never heard from their father's lips, I love you, I'm so proud of you. They never got that word of affirmation, of validation, of approval. You know, this past weekend, I was up at Hume Lake at a uh, men's retreat, part of a team leading worship up there for this, and during the retreat, there was this optional seminar that they were offering, and the topic for the seminar was on the topic of father wounds. And I was like, 
We're, that's, that's great. I'm going to go check it out. I'm sure there'll be a few other people there. I'm not kidding. There were hundreds of guys piled into this room. Hundreds of guys piled in this room on this topic, you know, an optional time when you can be out fishing, you can be out doing like, outdoorsy stuff. They're in the room because the topic is father wounds. It's, it's, it's crazy how, how prolific and how everywhere these wounds are. And so the speaker got, he shared his story, and we got to hear a lot of stories of other guys who carry around a father wound because they never received that love, that affirmation, or that validation from their dad. The speaker at the seminar, actually, he shared a quote from Michael Jackson. And if you know anything about Michael Jackson, you might know he, had, he dealt with a lot of wounds from his dad. Uh, and this is a quote from MJ. And he said, uh, speaking about his father, he said this. He said, he trained me as a showman, and under his guidance, I couldn't miss a step. But what I really wanted was a dad. I wanted a father who would show me love. And my father never did that. He never said, I love you, looking at me straight in the eye. He never played a game with me. He never gave me a piggyback ride. He never threw a pillow at me or a water balloon. And he went on to describe that what he wanted most of all was to hear his dad say, I love you, and not have it be conditional or contingent on his performance. See, not having that love and the affirmation, it, it produces a wound. And in the same way, we see Jacob, he's longing. He's longing for the approval of his father. And the only way that Jacob's been able to get these things and, and manage to, to, to get this stuff is by deception. His whole life, he's sought to validate and to find these, this meaning, this approval, and he's, he's had to use deception every time. We saw a couple weeks ago how he conned his brother out of the birthright, and then we saw he conned his dad in order to get the blessing. And it's important to know, like, the blessing was always verbal. The blessing was always verbal. Like, Jacob already had the birthright. He had all of the possessions. So the, getting, getting this uh, blessing was about, I want to hear out of my own dad's lips that he loves me, that he approves of me. And he was willing, even under a false pretense, to get it. You know, it wasn't real. He, he, he had to pretend to be Esau, but just to hear his dad say those things. He was willing to, do, to go at all lengths to get that. All he was longing, he was longing to hear his father say, I love you and I'm crazy about you. And so, it's amazing to see the different, the lengths that, that will go in order to get what our soul is craving. Jacob wanted the love and the approval and the acceptance of his father and the only way he felt that he could get it was to deceive. And so he took matters into his own hands. This is his, his classic MO. I'm just going to manage the situation, manipulate people, surroundings, in order to get, produce the outcome that I want, that I feel like I need, that will finally satisfy me. Well, Esau, you know, we saw Esau found out, found out about uh, Jacob, and rightfully so, he's angry. And so he wants to kill Jacob, and so now Jacob is forced to go run and hide. You see, Jacob has been wrestling his whole life. He's been deceiving. He's been manipulative. And he not only struggled with his brother and his father, but now he, we see that he struggles and wrestles with his uncle, Uncle Laban. He runs away and he ends up at his uncle's home and he ends up staying there for almost 20 years. And the time there, you know, pretty quick, 
like right immediately when he gets there, he sets his sights on Rachel. And it's just interesting to think, like, if you're not going to get the approval from your father, that, and you're carrying around that wound, like, it doesn't, it's not like, okay, well, I guess I'll just live without that. It's no, like, our hearts need, we need that. And so we're going to begin to look elsewhere for it. And so what we see is Jacob, he just latches on to Rachel. The fact he's willing to work seven years for somebody, I mean, maybe one, two. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's romantic to say I'd work seven, ten. But he, this, to say that he would work seven years, like he clearly is like, I want this girl, I want to have her now. And so he's willing to work seven years. So he's trying, again, he's trying to meet a need. Sets his sights on Rachel. And uh, in a weird twist of irony, the deceiver gets deceived. Jacob gets deceived. That uh, he gets a taste of his own medicine. You know, after seven years of finally waiting for Rachel, the wedding night finally comes, and Jacob thinks he's marrying Rachel, but Laban, his uncle, has passed off Leah secretly to him, and uh, Leah is Rachel's sister. I mean, don't you hate when that happens? (laughs) I hope no one can relate. (laughs) But it'd be interesting to hear the stories if they're worth so Jacob is clearly distraught with this whole thing, this whole ordeal, and he agrees to work for an additional seven years to get Rachel. And what's, what's crazy in the story here is that all his time over here with Uncle Laban, that God is blessing Jacob. God is, is, is increasing Jacob's flocks, his family. He's having all kinds of kids. All of his wealth, his possessions, his net worth is just going up and up. God's blessing him. And it's clear in Scripture it said, like, that it is God who is blessing him. But Jacob still has the void. He's still longing for that which will satisfy. And so he finally decides, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to the land that God promised me. And so he ends up manipulating Laban again and increasing his possessions even more and then leaving to go back to his land. So now Jacob, he's prepared to go back home, but there's still a problem, namely Esau. In order for Jacob to return home, he's going to have to face Esau. He's going to have to face his brother, the brother that wants to kill him. And so here we find Jacob, in, he's in a pickle. He's got Laban behind him, can't go back. He's got Esau ahead of him. So what does Jacob do? Well, what does Jacob always do? He starts scheming. He starts strategizing. He sends messengers over to Esau to let the, the messengers to let uh, Esau know, hey, Jacob's coming back, and, you know, just, he's coming. And the messengers come back to Jacob, and they're like, okay, so we told your brother you're coming, and it's great, it's great. Uh, he's on his way here now, and he's bringing 400 friends with him, <laughs> like an army. And so if you're Jacob, you're like, I'll be right back. <laughs> Do something, or, I don't know. And Jacob, yeah, he's freaking out. And so Jacob, he's, he's been wrestling his whole life. He's been deceiving, but now we see him, he's starting to get desperate. But there's got to be another strategy. There's got to be something else he can do. And there is. The next thing he does is diversify. He takes his whole, all of his possessions and his flocks, and he splits them into two groups. He's kind of smart. He's like, okay, if this group goes out, and if Esau attacks and kills all them, at least this group... Uh, has a chance of survival. Can I have a volunteers? Who wants to volunteer for this group? 
So he's like, if I can split things up, at least I can, I can maybe guarantee at least half of us survived. And then it's at that point in Genesis 32, verse 9, we see Jacob pray to God. And it's interesting that this is actually the first recorded prayer of Jacob. It's not his first encounter with God. He's, he's had these encounters, but this is like the first time he goes to him in prayer. And it makes sense that he goes to him in prayer because, you know, the saying, like, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. You know, he's in a foxhole. Things are about to go down, and so it, it produces this desperation in him, and you can hear it in his prayer. Verse 9, he says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, remember you said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and all of the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. I fear that he will come and attack me and, and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. You know, a quick little comment on that prayer. What I really appreciate about it is that he's not telling God, here's all the things that I, I deserve. Here's all the things that I've done. I've been faithful. Uh, me, 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 and what I've done, and what I, like, he's not recount, like, recounting to God his, his record. He, in this prayer, he's saying, God, you promised. And I think that's a huge, a huge thing that in our, our, our prayer life, as we pray, are we, are we telling God, hey, God, I promise to do this, I promise to do this, and I kind of, if then, like, if I do this, and, or are we just banking it all on God's promises? What I love about this is that he's banking it all on not what he's going to do for God, but what he, what God has promised to do for him. And so there's something really great about that prayer. It's desperate, it's sincere, but it's funny. Immediately after that, you'd think like, you'd say, amen. Ah, it's all in God's hands. Okay, great. Now, the, he literally goes right back to scheming. He, the next thing's, okay, okay, amen, got that done. Uh, okay, what we're going to do now is, his new idea is, I'm going to send wave after wave after wave of gifts for Esau. I'm just going to make it rain, make it rain on Esau. So he like sets up these waves of animals and all kinds of things that are just going to make their way to Esau. And so the idea was that when Esau's on this receiving end of this gift, wave after wave, that somehow his wrath or his anger will be pacified. You see, Jacob is the ultimate schemer. He's the ultimate spin doctor. But what we see here is that all of his scheming, his deception, all of the trickery, all of the manipulation has gotten him, it, it's gotten him into this mess. And that really none of it is going to be able to save him and rescue him from Esau. So at this point, Jacob, he knows he's all out of moves. He's all out of moves. There's no more tricks left in the bag. There's no aces up the sleeve. Now all he can do is wait until morning. You know, Jacob has spent his entire life wrestling with others. But what we see next is that Jacob must wrestle with God. And it's easy to think that that climatic high noon moment is the next day well, when he meets Esau, right? That's what the story feels like it's leading us to. Like, okay, is all of my plan, all of this, all the gifts, is everything going to work? 
And so I'm just going to wait. And uh, it's easy to think that the climatic moment is the, is the upcoming showdown with Esau. But then something here, something unexpected, unexpected happens here. You have to picture this. There he is. He sends all of his family over the river. Everyone's gone up ahead of him. He is now alone. It is now dark, and Jacob is all alone. And then all of a sudden, he hears footsteps behind him. And boom! Sorry, just had to wake you up a little bit. (laughs) Someone grabs him from behind and takes him down to the ground. And now a full-on fight has just launched. A full-on fight has broken out. And the story goes on. It says that Jacob wrestled with this guy until daybreak. And so, I don't know. Let me explain a little something to the ladies perhaps here. You know, guys, when we're growing up, we're doing a lot of wrestling, right? Yeah. <laughs> Preach. We're wrestling, and we're not just wrestling because it's fun. We're, we're like trying to like claim our spot in the pecking order, right? You know, and, and pray, um, wrestling is how you prove yourself. And Anytime I've wrestled, I mean, 30 seconds in, a minute, I don't know, like every single muscle on your body is just like tense, and three minutes in, you're done. They wrestled all night long, which is crazy. And it's insane that it says that Jacob seemed to be prevailing. Verse 25 and 26, when when he, the man, saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What in the world is happening here? Well, I think Jacob has just realized who this guy is. The story says that the guy merely touched, just touched his thigh and it dislocated it. It crushed it. It didn't say that he punched it or he did some crazy move. He literally touched it like, dink. And his leg was completely limp, and his, his body must have been filled with like searing pain. And, j- and at that point, Jacob is realizing, okay, this guy has been holding himself back all night. This is no joke. Jacob, he recognizes that he is, in fact, wrestling with God. And there's a dilemma because the sun is about to come up. And we know that you see the face of God, you die. To see God's face would kill a person. And any rational person at this point, you know, if like, my hip was dislocated, uh, and if I see this guy's face, I'm going to die. I mean, that, those are good reasons just to let go and be like, I'm too young to die. Just go away from me. Yeah. I mean, there's a great, there's a lot of reasons just to let go and give up. But Jacob, he's desperate. Any rational person would give up and let go. But Jacob is desperate. He's desperate for a blessing. In his whole life, he has longed for blessing, for love, for approval, for acceptance, at this point, he's so sick of just being that endless quest for his own meaning, his own validation and significance. You see, he didn't get it from his father, so he had to, he sought it elsewhere. And he was never able to, to secure it for himself. He was literally on a wild goose chase with no goose his entire life. But what we see here is that Jacob goes from wrestling the man 
to just clinging to him. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And notice what, the, what happens next. The man says, what is your name? What is your name? And for the first time in the story, we see Jacob acknowledging, coming clean, acknowledging his name. He says, my name is Jacob. My name is Deceiver. Okay, I'm a con man. My name is Jacob. It's only after Jacob admits that, it's only after he comes clean uh, that God blesses him. And, and, and God says, well, you're from, from now on, you're going to be called Israel. He renames him. There's this sweet picture of a, a new identity being bestowed upon him. And there's so much in the story we could talk about, but I want to close by asking this question. So it was a wrestling match. So who won? Who won the wrestling match? It's interesting, like what we read, the text seems to convey that Jacob, well, it says Jacob had prevailed. The question is, how, how did Jacob prevail? How did Jacob overcome? I think the answer is that Jacob wins by losing. He wins by losing. When he says, I won't let you go unless you bless me, he's acknowledging that he needs this man's blessing. And he's essentially saying, I've been wrong my whole life. I've been searching. I've been trying so hard to succeed, to find the approval, to find all of the acceptance and validation from so many things and people and stuff. And the blessing that I most needed and I most desired was yours. It was your blessing all along that I needed. And I think this is a great picture of repentance. It's saying to God, I've looked behind I've been looking under every worldly rock and behind every worldly tree to find what only you can provide. And God says, you have overcome, and Jacob, you have overcome because you have finally admitted that your life has been an utter failure. And it's, it's that coming to the place of seeing your weakness, your failure, your need for God's blessing, that's how he won. Jacob won by losing, by admitting his need for God's blessing. Jacob prevailed not by strength, but by declaring his dependence upon the blessing of God. You know, the Christian life and Christian growth is often characterized as the process, and this is what I kind of grew up with, and I, I hear it still, that there's this sense that the Christian life and Christian growth we describe it as the process of getting better and better, becoming stronger and stronger, so that, we don't say it this way, but so that I need Jesus less and less. Become, become stronger and stronger and grow, and then need Jesus less and less. But I think, and I believe, the Christian life is actually the process of becoming increasingly aware of how weak we actually are, so that we depend upon Jesus more and more. See, the Christian life is it's a, this weird paradox. It's a, this paradox of being both blessed but limping. It's this paradox of, of having joy but with weakness, with a limp. And having weakness and, and a limp but with joy. Tim Keller describes Jacob's condition at the end of the night, of this night, as a perfect picture of what a Christian is. He says, 
if you are assured of God's blessing, his acceptance and love, it inflicts you with a permanent joyful weakness. If you know God loves you like that, you don't have to save face anymore. You don't need to pretend you're strong. You don't have to defend yourself. You can admit your failure. You can admit you're wrong. You, you can be weak. You're strong enough to be weak. You're happy enough to be weak. See, God's blessing and his word, and of, his word and of love and of acceptance, when he speaks that over your life, it sets you free to live your life limping but with joy. So Jacob won by losing. He won through weakness. He won by declaring his need and his dependence on God's blessing. But Jacob wasn't the only one who won by losing. God also won by losing. God also wins through weakness. Let me explain that. Now let's look at the other wrestler. Now, I'm indebted to guys like Tim Keller and a bunch of other dudes who are way smarter than me for helping me understand and see this. But think about what God needed to do in order to save and to bless Jacob. I don't know about, I never wrestled like in high school or anything. I didn't do anything official like that. I don't know a lot about the rules of wrestling, but I do know this. I know wrestling, there's, there's a weight class. And you wrestle people that are in your weight class. And so they have the scales, and you have to make sure that you're evenly matched. Your opponent are in the same weight class. And so if you have a guy who's 10, 15, 20 pounds more than you, it's game over. There's no, there's no chance. And so let me ask this. How much does God weigh? How much does God's glory weigh? His power? Jacob should have been absolutely crushed but what this story tells us is that God voluntarily held himself back. He voluntarily became weak. He voluntarily stooped down to join Jacob's weight class. He held back his power so that he could bring salvation and blessing to Jacob. God became man. He became human. But here's the question, why in the world would a, would a God like why in the world would God bless a guy like Jacob? I mean, if you read Jacob's story, just from beginning to, to end, literally, there's, not a, there's no redeeming quality about him. He's, he's literally been a con artist. He's been a deceiver. He's been a liar his entire life. There's, there's nothing re, like redemptive about Jacob. Why would God, why would a just, a holy God come and bless a guy like Jacob? And here's why. Because in the darkness of that high noon moment, God only pretended to be weak. God only, he pretended to be weak. But centuries later, in the darkness of Calvary, the ultimate high noon moment, on the cross, in Jesus Christ, God literally became weak in order to bring salvation. And what happened to Jesus on the cross the full weight of God's wrath, the full weight of his justice was poured out upon Jesus. The full weight of every, the, the justice and the wrath that we deserved for our sin, all of that came down on him. He was crushed. The full weight that Jacob deserved came down on Jesus. Scripture tells us this in Isaiah 53. It says, but he, 
was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And through it all, all of the pain, all of the crushing force of God's justice coming down upon him, Jesus never gave up. He held on. But the difference between Jacob and Jesus is this. Unlike Jacob, who held on at the risk of his life to get the blessing for himself, he held on at the risk of his life so that he himself would be blessed. Jesus, he held on at the cost of his life so that we would be blessed. Jesus held on at the, at the cost of his life so that we would have the blessing. You know, that night, Jacob was blessed by God. He blesses him. We don't, again, the blessing was verbal. And we don't know exactly what God said to him, but check this out. If you receive Jesus Christ, God calls you his son. He calls you his daughter. He adopts us into his family. He becomes our father. We become his children. And in him, we have all of the acceptance, that word of, of approval, all of the validation, all of the affirmation. We have that in Christ. It's, all, it's already ours. And in Jesus Christ, God looks at us and he says, I love you. You mean the world to me. See, Jesus was willing to lose it all so that we might gain it all. All of the blessing. So look at what God has done for you. Look what he has done for us. In Jesus Christ, we hear God the Father say, you are my beloved son, my beloved daughter. I'm crazy about you. I love you. Band can cruise back up here. And uh, I just know uh, all of us, we're all wrestling. We're all wrestling uh, and, uh, with something, someone, with God. We all carry our wounds around. I can't imagine if we all went around and shared the stories of just the, the ways that we had been wounded. Like, it just, there would be so, so many. There's a lot of, a lot of us have never had that, that word of affirmation and of approval, that final stamp of like, your life counts. We've never felt that. We've never experienced that. And I want to ask you, have you gone to the Father? Have you gone to Him? Have you gotten that blessing that is found in Jesus Christ? And if not, I want to urge you to go to Him. Go to Him. Go to Him and say, bless me, O Lord, in Jesus Christ. Accept me because of what He has done. Accept me because of what he has done. And guess what? He will. He will. Lord, we come to you as needy people. Lord, it's hard for us at times to admit the, admit our weakness, admit our brokenness. But Lord, you, the good news is that you came for broken and needy people, because broken and needy people are really all that there are. God, help us to know what it, lo what it looks like to live 
with that limp, but to have joy. And Lord, thank you for the way that even in, in a, when things are going well and things are, we're experiencing just so much joy that we still have a limp. We can still, we can still be weak. So God, right now, you, you have spoken to us and so now we want to respond to you. You speak, we respond. And we want to make this, this response our declaration of, of our need and our dependence upon you and what you provide. Help us to see that, Lord. Bring us to that place where we, where we are wounded. Touch us and wound us because we know that your wounds are the wounds of grace. They're the wounds of love. And ultimately, they cause us to depend on you in deeper ways. Help us to know what that looks like and to do that.